Thank you, Sister Connie. Good stuff this morning. For the last time in a long time, would you take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark? Mark chapter 16. 58 weeks we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And everybody says, Amen. We're finally coming to the end. I I don't know whether it has become tedious. I hope it has not. I have truly enjoyed the study portion of this. But uh, after today, we'll move on to something else. Mark chapter 16, we're going to begin reading in verse number 9. I want to speak to you this morning on the topic of those pesky final verses. Those pesky final verses. Verse number 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Well, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these verses. And we pray now as we wrap up our study of Mark uh, that we can bring it to a fitting conclusion. And the Lord will teach us even from here. Uh, Give us wisdom, guidance, help us to understand your word. And most of all, Lord, I pray as I always pray that if there's anybody here in this room that uh, has never yet responded to the gospel, that does not yet understand Uh, what all this is about, doesn't realize yet that Jesus did what he did for them, then, Lord, I pray this would be the day they'd come to that conclusion. And I pray they'd hear the gospel for the first time and receive it and uh, be saved this day. And, Lord, however other Christians need to receive this, I pray they would, and that you would just speak to us all. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, to preach clearly and accurately and practically. Say only those things I should and nothing else. Use this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While every doctrine of every doctrine that we hold as Christians is important, some of the things that we believe I think are we could consider more foundational. For example, the inspiration and preservation of Scripture would seem to be one such foundational doctrine, wouldn't it? If we don't have a Bible that we can trust, then you know all our other beliefs stand on shaky ground, but they're brought to us in the pages of the Bible. And if the Bible is not something we can rely on and trust, then uh, how do we really know? How do we really know who God is? How do we really know that we have a God who in the beginning created everything, except for the fact that the Bible tells us that? How do we really know that we have a Savior who loved him, loved us and, and gave himself for us, except because we see it in the pages of Scripture. How do we know that he will come again if 
the Bible, which is the only thing that gives us such a hope and such an assurance, is not trustworthy. I, I tell you all often that you ought to carry your Bibles with you to church services, that you ought to open them, that you ought to pay attention and maybe underline and, and follow along as I'm, as I'm speaking, because it's your tool for keeping me honest as I preach. Uh, you know, I can say anything up here. I could. I could preach about anything uh, that comes to my mind. It's up to you to be Berean Christians. Acts 17.11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they heard the word, received the word with all readiness of mind, and then searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. The Bible is our tool for keeping the preacher honest. And so if you don't have a trustworthy Bible, what do you have to rely on? All of our beliefs are called into question if we don't have a trustworthy Bible. Our ability to discern what is true and false teaching is, is basically, it's, it, I don't know how you would do it. It's certainly lessened, if not impossible, if we don't have a trustworthy Bible. Everything about our faith would rest on shaky ground if we didn't have a Bible we could believe in and a Bible that we could trust. So do we? Do we? You see, we come now to the final verses of Mark. And before we can even look at the content of those verses, we have to deal with a problem. Because most of you are holding Bibles this morning that contain a footnote. Somewhere in your Bible, probably there is a footnote related to verses 9 through 20, if your Bible even includes verses 9 through 20. There are actually some that do not. I looked up some of those footnotes in one of my English Standard Version Bibles. It says this, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. In the New Living Translation, it says the most ancient manuscripts of Mark conclude with verse number 8. The New American Standard Bible I have and the New International Version Bible that I have, say they both say the same thing. They say the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. The message, which is usually not for a Bible that I recommend anyway, it's more of a paraphrase than anything, but it says, Mark chapter, 9, verse, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 is contained only in later manuscripts. That is a particularly misleading statement, by the way, of all of them. But nonetheless, it's what it says. And in my New King James, and I don't know if this says the same thing in the New King James that you're holding from the pews there, but or from the chairs, but... Uh, it says verses 9 through 20 are bracketed as not in the original text. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, which are the two oldest known manuscripts of the New Testament. Although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. Another reason I like the New King James. That's the most honest statement of all of the ones that were made right there that I think is honest. It is not my point here today to impugn people who have studied this stuff. Uh, just to, to point some of these things out. The fact is there is a textual problem with these verses. It has occupied the minds of those who study these kinds of things and who study biblical texts for centuries. Did Mark write these verses? That's one of the questions. And the second question is, should they be in our Bibles? The answer to the first question is probably not. The evidence is pretty good that Mark probably did not write or these verses. But the answer to the second question is, undoubtedly so. Whether or not John Mark wrote these verses, they are a part of the canon of Scripture, and the overwhelming evidence, even though those statements you might see in your Bible might lead you to think differently, the overwhelming evidence says they should be there. These verses are as much a part 
of the Word of God as the verses that precede them and the verses that follow them. My goal today is, is pastoral. My goal today is not to give you uh, an understanding of textual criticism or manuscripts or anything, because frankly, I do not pretend to be even remotely an expert on those sort of things. My goal today is pastoral. I want us, I want you to trust your Bible. That's the only thing that I'm trying to accomplish here today. Uh, if you want to study this deeper, there's, there's bookshelves filled with tomes that you could study this. I could put you in, in contact with a couple of really, really, really good articles about this uh, that are very, very helpful to understanding it. Uh, but that's not my goal today. My goal today is to help you learn that you can trust your Bible. So I want to do two things today. I want to, first of all, consider the question and give you some of the evidence and, and let you decide for yourself. Uh, and then I want to look at the verses of what they actually say. And then we'll be done today. We have something a little different going to take place at the end of our service today. So I'll try to be as brief as I can with this. Uh, I'm going to read you some things here because I I can't say this as well as as some of these experts can. Let me read you something from what I think is one of the greatest sources that I have on my shelves at home. It's called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It comes out of Dallas Theological Seminary. And here's what they say about this. I'm just going to pull a couple of sentences out of what they say. They say the last 12 verses of Mark are known as the longer ending of Mark, and they constitute one of the most difficult and most disputed textual problems in the New Testament. Were these verses included or omitted in Mark's original text? The external evidence includes the following. Number one, the two earliest unseal manuscripts, we mentioned those, those are Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, they date to the 4th century, they're the oldest manuscripts that we know of, Those two omit the verses, though, interestingly, their respective scribes left some blank space after verse 8. If you look at your bulletin this morning, I gave you a picture of that so that you can see that. Very unusual thing. On that particular manuscript, there's space there, just about exactly enough space to hold all these verses. I find that very fascinating. So, they, uh, they, they, the respective scribes left some blank space after verse 8, suggesting that they knew of a longer ending, but did not have it in the manuscript they were copying. And number two, this is important. Most all other manuscripts, as well as early versions, support the inclusions of verses 9 through 20. So the external evidence says there are two manuscripts, basically, the oldest ones, that do not show this. There is a third manuscript that's almost exactly as old as them that does. But those two do not. Almost every other one does include verses 9 through 20. In addition to that external evidence, there's also some internal evidence that Mark did not write these verses. And uh, there's all kinds of things have been written about this. Basically, it boils down to this. The style is radically different. And if you read your Bible, I, I can see this, and I think you probably can too. If you read Mark chapter 16, when you hit verse number 9, it's different. Something's different. It's just like a different style. It it does feel like a different person's thought processes and a different pattern of writing. So the style is radically different. And another thing that is uh, cited as internal evidence is there are words used here in these 12 verses that Mark did not use anywhere else. Gospel of Mark. That's a weak argument. It It can be shown to be a weak argument. But nonetheless, that's one of the things that people cite as being uh, evidence that Mark did not write this. Here are a few other comments that helped me as I studied it anyway. One person said, even if Mark did not write the longer ending, that would not justify casting its canonicity aside. 
Several ending verses in books named after the primary author bear indications that they were not written by the primary author. Yet evangelicals never doubt the inspiration and canonicity of such verses. It seems, for example, that Moses did not write Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 through 12, because the narrative describes his death and his burial. I don't know how he would have done that, but nobody questions. Nobody, nobody questions those verses. It's not certain who wrote them. But evangelicals don't doubt the inspiration of those verses. It seems that Jeremiah did not write Jeremiah chapter 52. We don't know who wrote Jeremiah chapter 52. But evangelicals do not doubt the inspiration and canonicity of the chapter. This person goes on to say critics who wish to remove Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20, and some people actually argue for that. They say it simply should not be there. Uh, those who wish to remove Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 by reason of its supposed non-Markan authorship ought to apply the same reasoning across the entire Bible and remove Deuteronomy chapter 34 and Jeremiah chapter 52 if they would dare to do so. And of course I would add to their comments, they probably ought to scratch the entire book of Hebrews out of their Bibles in two since nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. It's unknown. One writer concluded this way, he said, it is true that the longer ending of Mark, chapter 16, is found in 99% of the Greek manuscripts as well as the rest of the tradition. All told, the cumulative external evidence that documents the genuineness of those verses from Greek manuscripts, patristic citations, ancient versions, is expansive, ancient, diversified, and unsurpassed. 99%. And so that's why I thought that one particular comment that said it was only in the oldest manuscripts was particularly misleading. That would give, lead you to believe that there's a, a minor amount that does support, but that's not true. The majority of the evidence we have says it is indeed there. I believe the evidence is compelling that John Mark did not write these 12 verses. That can be argued, but I think there's evidence there that he didn't write it. But I also believe that fact is completely irrelevant to whether or not they are Scripture, to whether or not they are important to us, because regardless of who wrote them, whether it was John Mark, and if it wasn't, we don't know who it was. Regardless of that, these verses are as much a part of the Word of God as any other. They are just as much, like every other verse of the 66 books of the Bible, they are just as much inspired by God, they are just as much Theophnustos, breathed by God, as any other verse. With that brief answer to that, and if you want to study that more, I can show you some things. But with that brief, let's, let's look at them. What do they say happened? If they are indeed uh, the word of God, and they are. Mark had already described Jesus' resurrection in the first eight verses of the chapter. So what do these add? And they add a few things. First of all, look at verse number 9, verses 9 through 14, and we see that they add sightings. Sightings. Mark here confirms, or whoever wrote this, confirms what, every, what, what the other gospel writers have already told us. Jesus' resurrection was confirmed by sightings and by interactions with other people. He was seen after his resurrection. We're not only told that the tomb was empty, and that was up in verse number 6, but that several people, many people actually, saw and interacted with his Christ. Mark mentions just a few. He mentions, for example, Mary Magdalene in verse number 9. says she was the first to see him. The two men on the road to Emmaus are mentioned next, verses 12 through 13. We wouldn't know they were on the road to Emmaus right there, really, other than the fact that we know it from Luke. Luke expanded on that greatly and, and gives us a whole, a whole wonderful story of that encounter 
uh, with the two men on the road to Emmaus. And then finally we see that he appeared to the eleven in verse number 14, and that's a reference to the apostles. So those are the three different sightings that Mark mentions. If we take this passage and lay it alongside the other Gospels, we find absolutely no disagreement there. We have the other accounts might describe some others that happened as well, but there's no disagreement between them. Jesus was seen. We don't just have an empty tomb to prove he lives. Gaither says the empty tomb is there to prove my Savior lives. True. But we have more than that. We also have this amazing horde of eyewitness testimony about how he was seen after his resurrection. Paul, and we, we've quote, we quote from this verse often, it's one we should all have marked in our Bibles, but Paul wrote the most succinct and complete summation of the, of, the, of the gospel to be found anywhere in the Bible. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, and it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve, and he goes on to list others there. This is the gospel which we believe and which we hold to without question. It's what we preach. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day, and he was seen. So he mentions sightings. Verse number 15, he mentions something else. He mentions sending. Sending. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. If we were to remove the last 12 verses of Mark from our Bibles, which we're never going to do, but if we were to do that as some think that we should, I would miss this verse probably more than any of the others. Because I've quoted this verse so many times. It's often referred to as the Great Commission, and along with other verses that say the same thing. It's Jesus marching orders to the disciples. It's Jesus marching orders to his church. It's Jesus marching orders to you and to me. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And whether Mark wrote that or not, it sounds like something he would write there. Because notice how brief it is. It's typical of his brevity and his succinctness. It's only 12 words here in our New King James Bible, yet it's as clear as can be. We are sent We are sent into all the world. We are not sent to do all kinds of good things and good works. We are sent with one particular mission in mind. We are to preach the gospel, and we are to preach it everywhere and to everyone. So sending. He mentions a third thing here. It's in verse number 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Belief and baptism. Now, here's a verse that has been misused. It has been misquoted. It has been used to teach that baptism is a requirement for salvation, and just a very, very quick, brief reading of it could perhaps make you think that's what it's saying. But that's not what it says at all. And if we interpret it properly, the confusion is cleared up. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation, and the proof of that is in the second half of the verse. Because the only thing that damns a person is unbelief, and the only thing that saves a person is belief. This verse is in complete agreement with every other uh, part of Scripture that says we are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if you hear somebody tell you that this verse teaches you have to be baptized in order to be saved, that's not what it teaches. It's not what it teaches. But on the other hand, on the other hand, the New Testament knows absolutely nothing 
of an unbaptized believer. Such a thing does not exist in the New Testament. It is assumed, it is assumed and immediate that one would have a public declaration of belief. Everybody in, in, that we see described in Scripture, once they believed, were baptized. Acts 2.41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So while this verse cannot be used to teach baptism as a requirement for salvation, I do believe this verse teaches that baptism is a requirement, and maybe that's too hard of a word, but I can't think of another one to fit there. It is a requirement for obedience. I think that is what it teaches. Belief and baptism. Verses 17 and 18, he speaks of signs. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. We dealt extensively with the sign gifts back when we talked through, uh, taught through Acts. And so you can get that if you're interested in, in knowing more about that. I'm not going to go into great detail with them here. We also talked about it extensively when we taught through 1 Corinthians. But just, just to summarize and to be as brief as I can, these verses describe certain gifts and abilities that are clearly described here as signs. It, ta- it uses that term in verse number 17 and also in verse number 20. And I know that some people interpret these verses to be something, describing something that's normative for all of us, but that is not what it's talking about. These things are talking about things that are normative for the apostles. These were examples of the signs of an apostle, specific to the apostolic era, used to authenticate their ministry and testimony. And that's seen here in verse number 20. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. 2 Corinthians 12.12 The writer to the Hebrews wrote, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. These were signs of an apostle. We're not taught in Scripture that we're to speak in tongues. The apostles and those uh, exhibiting those signs, that's what that was speaking about. Now, it's important to note that with the exception of the drinking of poison, uh, every single thing that is mentioned here was demonstrated in the lives and ministries of the apostles. We have no evidence of anybody ever drinking poison, but we have everything else. One example of casting out of demons is seen in Acts chapter 16 and verse number 18. This she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and he came out that very hour. And, of course, the speaking speaking in tongues is seen on the day of Pentecost. Very plainly, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And, again, while there's no record of anybody drinking poison, there is a record of the Apostle Paul being bitten by a snake, and uh, being completely protected from any uh, influence of that or any evil part of that. Acts chapter 28, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And so when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And, of course, there's ample evidence of people being healed by the apostles. Paul, again, provides one such clear example in Acts chapter 28 and verse 8. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, 
and he laid his hands on him and healed him. I know that some have used these verses to justify saying that these things are normal and right activities for us in every age, Christians in every age. Some people handle snakes. Anybody ever been to a snake handling service? I don't know if they drink poison or not, but I know they handle snakes. And, of course, a lot of people believe in speaking in tongues and things like that. But these were sign gifts, normative for the apostles and the people in the apostolic age, not normative for us. He speaks of one other thing here, two other things here. Verse number 19, he speaks of the ascension. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The other gospel writers, as well as uh, the initial words in the Acts of the Apostle, give us a lot more detail about Jesus' ascension. Mark's account is typically brief. I love the brevity of it. Jesus was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. I love the finality of it. I'm reminded of his words from the cross. It is finished. And the work of salvation was complete. And so what did Jesus do? He went home and he sat down. I love that. I love that. What do I do when I'm done with work? I go home and I sit down. It just it speaks of the finality of it. And uh, I like that. And then verse number 20, one last thing. Uh, it speaks of the spread. The spread. They went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Verse 19 reminds us that in one sense, Jesus' work is finished. He ascended, and he is with the Father until the day of his return. Stephen, as he was being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, got a glimpse of just where Jesus is today, when as he was dying, he said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Acts chapter 7. So in one sense... Jesus' work is finished. In another sense, verse 20 reminds us that Jesus' work continues. It continues through his followers, first the apostles and now us. They and we were told to go in verse number 15. And in verse number 20, we see their obedience to that commission. They were sent, and so they went. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but there's a glorious truth in that final verse, a wonderful and encouraging thing. In those closing words, the Lord working with them. They were not sent alone, and neither are we. He goes with us. He works with us. Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Matthew's account of the Great Commission goes like this. He said, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you, always, even to the end of the age. I am with you, he said. And he was with them, working in and through them as they So what is the conclusion of this whole matter? I would suggest it is this. You can trust your Bible. Every word of it. And so we need to rejoice in and learn from even these final verses in the Gospel of Mark. He was seen. We are sent. Belief is what saves. And baptism is what demonstrates it. Signs did follow the apostles and validate their ministry before the New Testament was completed. Jesus did ascend, does sit on the Father's right hand, and does work in and through each of us 
as we continue to spread his gospel here on earth. And thus ends the gospel of Mark. Father, we're thankful so much for your word. We're thankful for what we see here. We're thankful, Lord, for those who labor so hard to determine that we truly have the word of God, that it is accurate and it is rightly translated and all those things. And we're thankful, Lord, that when we look at our Bible, the copy that we hold in our hand, we have the assurance that every word of it is true and right and accurate and inspired by God. God breathed. And so help us, Lord, to trust our Bibles. May we believe it more every single day. And may we read it more every single day and believe it. And, Father, I pray if there's even any, even one person here today who's never responded to the glorious gospel that's contained herein, that they would this very day. Lord, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.